We have one mission at the program. Develop better leaders and create more cohesive teams. Let's go, man. It's a race. Welcome to the program podcast. The program is a team building and leadership development company that works with more than 160 collegiate and professional athletic teams and corporations throughout North America annually. And I'm Eric Capitulic, the founder and CEO of it. The program believes that talent allows us to do well in life. It allows us to win games. But a commitment to getting that much better. Put your thumb and index finger two inches apart. That much better allows us to compete for championships on whatever our chosen battlefield may be. We get that much better by being great teammates and great team leaders. Individuals and individual talent can win games, but great teams compete for championships on any battlefield. And great teams are comprised of great teammates and great team leaders. Joining me today on the program podcast to help us become great teammates and great team leaders is president of the program corporate and retired United States Marine Corps Captain Corey Ross. Corey enlisted in the United States Marine Corps in 1997, graduated boot camp in San Diego, California, and served as an infantryman for 12 years, eventually serving as an infantry platoon sergeant. During this time, he deployed to Okinawa, Japan, and Korea, and also to Kenya following the U.S. Embassy bombing there in 1998. He was then assessed and selected into the very competitive Marine Enlisted Commissioning Education Program, or MESEP. The Marine Corps has 180,000 approximate enlisted Marines. 100 of them are selected for this program. Corey graduated at the top of his class from Texas A&M University, became a commissioned officer, and was later named the honor graduate at the Armor Officers Basic Course. Following a tour of duty as a tank platoon commander and company executive officer, Corey served a year with Special Operation Forces in Eastern Afghanistan, where he spoke the local language and advised Afghan local police commanders and district governors. Corey deployed to Afghanistan and conducted combat operations in both 2012 and 2015 in support of the war on terror. Corey was recognized numerous times for his actions in combat and then later selected to lead an advisor team in Southern Afghanistan on a subsequent tour. Corey now resides in Middle Tennessee with his wife, five children, and a variety of horses, cows, and dogs. Corey, thank you so much for making the time to speak with me and our audience today. Appreciate it, Eric. Um, we That all makes me sound like a hero, but the truth is I've had a great team around me for every bit of that and a great partner through all of it. So thank you for that introduction. Well, it's interesting you say it, Corey, because um, all of our teammates at the program 
but but I think you especially um, are exactly the opposite of me. Me, <laughs> I try to tell everybody about all of my accomplishments. You are have accomplished so much in your life and are one of the single most humble people I know. Um, and you talk about sounding like you're a hero, but no, you've been surrounded by them. Um, I disagree because what you sound like as I read that doesn't even come close to reflecting the man and, and human being you are. Anyway, Corey, before we discuss section one, creating a championship culture of our book, the program, lessons from elite military units for creating and sustaining high performance leaders and teams that we based on you and the army special forces you were attached to while serving in Afghanistan, I'd, I'd really like to start by talking about Corey Ross pre United States Marine. As I just said, you're one of the finest, most courageous, honest, and kind people I've ever known. And yet you have told me stories about yourself pre-United States Marine, pre-United States Marine Corps, that I simply cannot reconcile with the man I now know. It's important though, Corey, because, I, and I'd love for you to discuss that Corey Ross with our audience, because I think too often people see certain individuals when they're, you know, I don't think we're ever finished products, but, but they see certain people at a certain point of their life after they have attained mm -hmm. certain success. And mm -hmm. it, it's, they, they, we have revisionist history. We think, well, that person's a success. I'm sure they were a success throughout their entire life. Yeah. Your life is a testament to how people can and do change. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's start there. I think it's important for our coaches and, and corporate teammates who, who uh, have certain individuals maybe joining their team who are not quite successes in life yet, despite their talent level, uh, to hear this story. Can, can, you, can you talk about it? I can. And I should have never told you these stories. Um, it's probably going to be the most interesting part of this podcast, though, because first, I, you know, I come from a great family, much like you've described your family. I have no no excuse to have turned into the person that I was as a teenager and as a young adult. No excuse from my family. Um, right. You have a dad. You have a mom. They, yeah. they taught you the right things. Right. They were engaged in your life. Exactly. I mean, coached my ball teams was there. We were in church every weekend and, and just, it was a great, we were middle-class, you know, we had things, we didn't have everything, but we had enough and, and we enjoyed just a good lifestyle. Um, I needed to always push the limits though. Even when I was a good kid, I still was like acting up in Sunday school and being you know, trying to be the funny guy in class. So I always push those limits a little bit. And so I look back on it. And as you're asking the question, I think couple that little adventurous guy with drugs and violence and a group of people that were into that. And that's like putting gas on a fire. 
And so I got into those things. And to make a long story short, you know, that young kid who was adventurous baseball player, football player, ended up being a kid running drugs from Mexico through Texas all the way into Missouri in my teenage years. Like as a teenager, I was selling drugs and then everything below that uh, I was into stealing and, and robbing houses and things like that. So it was just not a good life. I was complete, just um, criminal in every way, shape, or form. Parents sent me to a military school. Corey, kind of before we talk, Corey, before we talk about the military school, because those stories are not only <laughs> interesting, but I mean, both appalling and hilarious all at the same time, uh, which really would would be a, a correct description of your entire adolescence. Um, but how did you get involved with th that crowd? Yeah, we were all baseball players and we were all all-stars and we spent a lot of time together and I followed a couple of guys who were better ball players than me. So I kind of looked up to them. And to be honest, I, I wanted to be in their group. I was on their team and, you know, they were, I was new to that town and I felt like this was my group and that group slowly went down a path that ended up in what I just described running yeah. drugs. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so your parents, you basically get busted by the police mm -hmm. Yeah. So and what your dad, your parents have a, sit you down and say, okay, it's military school or. Yeah, no, or it was, it was just military school. At that point, I'd already been expelled from high school oh. and then long-term suspended two other times. And at that point it was a funny conversation. My dad said, Hey, uh, we're thinking about a, a um, private school for you. And I go, Oh, okay. I'd seen movies about private school. And he said, yeah, but it's more of a boarding school. And I said, Oh, okay. You know, I've seen taps or whatever those shows are like, um, I'll live away from home, be on my own. Sounds good. I'm in. And then he said, but it's more of a military boarding school. And I was like, hell no, I am not going to a military boarding school. And there was no conversation. Like if I got to give credit for one big consequence for my actions growing up, it was that there was no uh, choice and yeah. I just went that you know we're going to talk about it. it's interesting Corey right because we're going to talk about it in depth here when we talk about a championship or world-class culture and mm -hmm. that idea of consequences mm -hmm. is key to and benefits by the way I should say there should be rewards as well mm -hmm. but Th that idea is key to success yeah and so to lead up to that I gave my dad the credit for drawing a hard line there tough love and he does it again later in this story okay. but up to that point the consequences were not they were not um, enforced so it led me down that road it allowed me to be that criminal but then finally it, it became just too much looking back on it is uh, that idea that, hey, I'm not gonna, okay, we have consequences, but they're not enforced, which means they're not really consequences. Mm -hmm. In your own life, 
has that impacted your fatherhood today because you know what unenforced consequences leads to or could lead to? Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's every day. So I hold my own kids to a standard that I know is, is critical because yeah. of what I was not really held to until I was sent away. Yeah. So it's, it's very important to me. They probably think I'm insane for the, for the level of uh, accountability in our house, but it's for, it's because of what I've seen and what I've done. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about it more. So you get sent to military school. Yes. And that's the first step in kind of opening my eyes to a better path. However, that military school was full of other criminal and degenerates just like me. So yeah. I had a hundred other kids who were all into drugs, fighting and, and everything else and stealing that I now became connected to and they lived all over the world. So that was- What, what I would like to point out to our audience though is that this military school that Corey got sent to, it is not the United States Naval Academy, okay? <laughs> uh, just as a graduate of that fine institution, I wanna highlight that. This was, this was, a, this was a high school that you, you were, how old, Corey? I'm 15, 16 when I showed up at the Kemper Military School in high college. School. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so, okay, go ahead though. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, and uh, just connected me. And so it really, it did a lot to develop my leadership, but I was leading a band of just criminals in every way. So I will say that I became a leader there and I excelled and was promoted all the way up to the top of the school. I mean, you mm -hmm. couldn't get a higher rank than I got. Uh-huh. However, I was then I graduated and I now had a criminal network and that was not good either. So. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay, so then what, what happens next? Yeah, I graduate, immediately start running, you know, down to Mexico, buying drugs, bringing them up through Houston, eventually have warrants in Houston that caused me to flee the state basically and ended up back in Missouri, back with a lot of my old high school buddies from that school, from the military school, and got in trouble again in Missouri. I won't go into detail on that, but it was more serious than anything I'd ever done before. It involved narcotics, and um, it involved a, a, a chase, basically, and my house was raided. I saw them coming. And by your house, you mean your parents' house? No, this was my girlfriend's parents' house that I was okay. sitting in in the middle of the day and okay. I uh, saw a suspicious car come by a few times and then they finally stopped and I said this isn't good I gotta go and I stole her brother's running shoes from the basement jumped out the basement window and um, as I was hitting the backyard fence I turned around and a plainclothes police officer had a gun drawn on me and was hollering at me to stop and I made a decision right in that moment to jump the fence and I just ran as far as I could run and they didn't pursue me. Uh, I got to a golf course, lived there for three days, came back for, you know, my girlfriend would bring me sandwiches and, and I just waited for her to get her mom's car to take me to another city and basically fled that warrant, you know, that I had in that city and slowly but surely came to the end of the road. So the road got darker and darker and just turned into a situation where I could no longer thrive. 
and I was just surviving. I was surviving on a 25 cent package of ham and some bread every day. I had no identification. Uh, the cops had taken my money, all of my drugs and my wallet. So I was just basically surviving with friends that owed me money or owed me a favor. One of the criteria when I was excommunicated from my family in Texas was that if I ever decided to join the military, that I would be allowed back. And so I basically asked for forgiveness. I said, I'm ready to do this. And um, my dad said, okay, I'm not bringing you home until we have a solution, a military solution. And so he went and talked to a bunch of the recruiters, came back over the phone and said, hey, you know, I talked to all the recruiters. They all had great, you know, college and, and GI Bill and stuff like that but I don't know what a Marine is. I do know, I do know they're the most impressive by far. And I said, okay, well, I don't know what a Marine is either. I've seen one in my life. I'd seen one Marine and he, he caused the whole room that we were in to just stand still and be like, who's that guy? And so that's my only experience with the Marine Corps up to that point. And I said, okay, then, then I'll go talk to the Marine recruiter and see what that's all about. He guaranteed me infantry because I said I wanted to see the world. I wanted to fire every gun known to man, and I wanted to have women waiting on me at every port. And he said, yeah, I'll get you an 0311 spot. So I joined the infantry guaranteed contract, and uh, that was not all true, the women part mainly. And I only got to fire like three or four guns, but they happened to be some of the cooler guns that exist on planet earth. So, so Corey, um, when you look back on it, the, your father goes to the recruiters for you and says, yeah, you're not coming back home until I see that you've signed on the dotted line basically. Mm -hmm. And did you at that time think about any of the other services or did you then go talk to the recruiters before you signed on the dotted line? Or at that point, were you basically like, okay, I'm just going to sign on this dotted line because there's, I've got no other options in life left. Well, if I want to be truthful and I don't admit this to very many people, but I did attempt to join the army as an officer and I went down and they gave me waivers for my drugs and some other little petty arrests that I had had and the school the military high school that I was that I graduated from wouldn't allow me to come back which is what led me to the marine corps so I was very close to being an army lieutenant wow hmm. but and uh you know but before our audience to understand this what's surprising is that the marine corps even allowed you to enlist mm-hmm it is, uh, you know, I had a great recruiter. That's all I could say. He was man, a, you must have right. Because <laughs> I think some people to this day, I think they think of, well, the military in general, but certainly the Marines as okay. Well, you join the military if it's your last stop, mm -hmm. and in fact, in your case, it was. But that is so rare. I mean, the average U.S. Marine that I ever served with was every bit officer material, mm -hmm. but either they just chose they didn't want to be one 
or they just didn't have the same opportunities that I had of going to college, you yeah. know, type type of thing. I mean, they were unbelievable young men and women. So mm -hmm. you were not. No. No. <laughs> and I still wasn't. To just to kind of round out the story, the Marine Corps didn't just change me overnight. I believe, though, that it was an answered prayer to what my family had just kind of, they said, hey, we have no other answers for this kid. And if there's any way you could save him, and I believe the only thing that would save me was not another service. I don't believe that the discipline in any other service, not to knock it, but it's a little bit higher in the Marine Corps. And by a little bit, I mean a lot. Um, I don't think any other service would have broken that just path of destruction that I was on. Yeah. And so the Marine Corps was put in my path. I still wasn't a good human being yet. I thought that my whole purpose in life was to join this military organization and then go to war and get paid to do it. And over time, I, I had some mentors that opened my eyes and I'll name them right now. Yeah, Joe please. Speed and Stephen Kinsley, my first two platoon commanders. Joe uh, Speed, he, by the way, who I went to the Naval yeah. Academy with. Joe played football at the Naval Academy while I was playing lacrosse there. And uh, just one of the world's great human beings. I always say about like Joe, there's a couple people that I've run across in my life, Corey, where, and you're, I'm sure you're one of them, where if somebody meets Eric Capitulic and afterwards they're like, eh, Capitulic, <laughs> I don't know about that guy. Like, I can see it. Like, I, yeah. I understand. Somebody says, yeah, Joe Speed, uh, I don't know about that guy. No, you're a bad human being. Yeah. Yeah. So I would agree. Yeah. So, okay, so Joe Speed, yeah, great human being. Yep. Yeah, my first experience in the Marine Corps, he was my platoon commander. Uh, Stephen Kinsley then took over for him for my second or, or my the last half of my first enlistment. He was a MESET Marine. He had been through the commissioning program. He had been an enlisted recon guy. And he said, Corey, why are you not doing this? And I had never thought of it. Because and at this point, you were, you had been in the Marine Corps for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And the culture of the Marine Corps, duty, honor, country, there, it's starting to impact you. The people mm -hmm. that you're surrounded with there at this point are starting to impact you. So this, the second, this new platoon commander, probably a second lieutenant at the time or first lieutenant at most is now recognizes that in you? Yeah, it was the people I was surrounded by. It was definitely the culture yeah. of the Marine Corps, a discipline, leadership, and, and those things spoke to me. And eventually I became a better human being. And, and it was because of those people that influenced me. Yeah. Um, okay, so then you, you, you go to you get selected, which, I mean, every part of this story is more amazing to me than, than the last. Like, I don't know if I can accurately convey to the audience the, the lottery, basically, mm -hmm. that you're winning at almost every step of this journey, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But, but you, you're selected for the MESET program. You attend Texas A&M University. You become an Aggie. Uh, you're an honor graduate from there. Mm -hmm. or, 
Uh, right. You're commissioned as an officer in the United States Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. uh, and you serve with distinction. 2000, uh, the, you're then uh, bring us up, catch us up to then how you get to uh, fill in the fill in the blanks here, the blank space here, uh, to how you found yourself in the Tora Bora Mountains in 2013. Yeah, so really it was a, I, I didn't get to deploy to Iraq or Afghanistan during my enlistment. So during the 12 years I, would, I was enlisted, which includes college, I never did get an opportunity to go. A buddy of mine and, and, and I tried to go and then it just wasn't in the cards. It never lined up for my unit that I was with, which is yeah. odd to fight a war for 10 years and not get to go to it uh, or two wars. And so I was really feeling uncomfortable about that. And as I was a tanker, a tank platoon commander and then executive officer in that same battalion, we weren't sending tanks to Afghanistan at the time. And Iraq was were pretty much over at the time. So I was not seeing any deployments to combat in my future. And then I was offered this job and this that I'd never heard of before. And no one that I knew had ever heard of. And it was a job where I would go learn the Afghan language and culture for months and months and months, be immersed in the language by true Afghan interpreters who had been um, basically brought to America to teach us. And you learn that language, you go over and, and attach to a special forces team, a special operations team, whether it be Marine, Navy, or Army. I just happen to be attached to an Army ODA, um, which is an A team. And I knew the language. Being a Marine, they didn't know me from anybody else and didn't want me. That, okay, so a Marine captain is coming to our SFODA and we do not want him living with us. We don't want him judging us or holding us accountable or having any kind of discipline in our little compound because, you know, a Marine captain is looked at as like somebody who's marching across a parade field yeah, to, yeah. to an Army uh, Green Beret. Yeah. And so when I got there, you know, it took a little bit to be accepted. It took a little bit of me proving myself to be accepted by that team. And yeah. then the reason I needed to be accepted was to get in a position where I could do my job, right. which was advise the Afghans. Advise you had to develop trust. Yeah. I had to build trust. Before you even develop trust with the, with the Afghans, you got to develop trust with the army A team that you're, that you're uh, attached to. 100%. So step one, get in with the team, get to go where they're going. Step two, get close to the Afghans and start influencing the battlefield. Okay. And I just happened to be surrounded by some, some really great um, army operators. Yeah. And um, eventually they did trust me to be part of their missions. Uh, the second team I was attached to, so one ODA ripped out, so they got replaced by another ODA. And um, that ODA stands for what, Corey? Operational Detachment Alpha. Yep. Okay. And that's just a, a team of Green Berets. Yep. And so they 
were replaced by another team of Green Berets in the same battle space, which allowed me to do anything I wanted. And so I would go on every mission with them. And then they would ask me, hey, how can we help you accomplish your mission with these Afghan leaders? And, and we did that. We did it for a year. And Corey, let me, let me ask a question just um, very quickly. You talked about developing trust. You go to a new unit, you've got to develop trust with them. So you, in, how did you, any, anything specific you did with them to develop that trust? Uh, two things, humility and get your hands dirty. Yeah. So be humble enough to have a younger, you know, lower ranking Green Beret come and check my gear. You know, hey, am I set up right? Because I'm not, I'm not a special operator. I, I didn't go to the special operations pipeline. I'm a Marine tanker. I know how to do something else really well that, that y'all don't do, but I'm in your world. So check my gear, check my setup, and then, you know, offer the tools that I can offer. And one of the first questions they asked me was, are you a shooter? And I said, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm a shooter. So be humble, fill whatever role I can fill until I build that trust. And so really you wouldn't expect to see it, but I was a Marine captain on a machine gun for that entire year. And you might think, well, how can you be a leader on a machine gun? I, I wasn't at the beginning. I was just building that trust, you know, earning my spot on the team. And so my spot on the team was behind a, a 240 golf machine gun in the back of a Humvee. And that's very unusual, but it was a moneymaker. And uh, well, Corey, it really speaks to the idea of that, that we highlight to every team we work with, right? Which is great teammates consistently meet and exceed two standards. First and foremost, they set the example in everything they do. And then they hold their teammates accountable to achieving it. And the example is they meet and exceed the high standards of that organization. The first thing you have to do and that you did was meet and exceed that organization's standards. And people see that. Then you hold teammates accountable to doing the same. But we all have to be great teammates first. Great team leaders consistently meet and exceed two additional standards. They accomplish the mission, number one. Your, you show up there, and yes, it may look odd seeing a Marine Corps captain behind a 240 Gulf machine gun, but what you're really doing there is you're, be, you're first becoming a great teammate. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you're working on accomplishing the mission as team leaders need to stay focused on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, from our book, from the program, Lessons from Elite Military Units for Creating and Sustaining High-Performance Leaders and Teams, we write, the sun rose bright and clear over the Tora Bora Mountains in eastern Afghanistan on January 10th, 2013. It was a surreal moment in a combat zone when you forget you are at war and are reminded of the beauty the world can offer. Mm -hmm. But Corey, shortly after that sunrise, you and the US Army Special Forces that you were attached to, you all were violently reminded that you were indeed in a combat zone. Mm -hmm. 
Can you tell that story specifically? Yes, you say the word surreal and it's it's actually surreal right now to be talking about the worst day of my life mm. and something that we can that we talk about routinely in order to create better teams and better team leaders. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so just to describe that day, beautiful morning. Uh, traveling around Eastern Afghanistan with our Afghan partners. These are guys that we're going to go to battle with, that we're training to protect their own villages once we leave. And hey, Corey, um, by the way, you know what? I just want to stop you there and I'm going to give you the floor. But it's interesting, though, right? That when we talk about development, we draw from our experiences of the tough times, of the challenging times, of the worst days of my lifetimes, mm-hmm. not yeah. 70 degrees and sunny out here. Mm-hmm. Interesting that we, that when we, meaning the program is talking about developing better leaders, creating more cohesive teams, developing great teammates. What do we draw from? It's those challenging times. And we're going to talk about it when we talk about culture, but please go ahead. Yeah. So up until We'd spent the night with the Afghans. We wake up the next morning, sunrise, cool, just beautiful mountains of Tora Bora. And they then slaughter a sheep for us, which is a sign of respect. Huge respect, right? Yeah, bringing us into their family. And we're in a compound where everybody's just totally relaxed and, and getting to know each other, building rapport with these new partners that we had just recruited. And we had chosen a commander for our local police force. We slaughter the sheep, we start eating, you know, they eat every bit of the sheep. So if you can imagine, we're eating every bit of the sheep. And (laughs) a couple guys, though, are focused on, you know, some drone footage that we're getting and some um, aerial surveillance of military age males gathering and moving us about in our battle space. And that's just kind of happening off to the side. Meaning some of your guys are are focused mm-hmm. on this drone information coming in yeah we're we're partners with the afghans so we've got a couple afghans uh and then a couple of our green berets are watching the drone feeds and getting reports from our intel cell uh, of what's happening around us and so i was able in my position to stay where i was at and just continue hanging out building rapport with the afghans with a couple of other of my Green Beret teammates. And then um, we had other guys that were on guns on our gun trucks that were just making sure we had full security around okay. the compound. Yep. Okay. Yep. So then it did get to the point though, where we needed to, we needed to leave and get ahead of this unknown force where we didn't quite see weapons yet. So we couldn't engage, but military age males that were gathering in the in the local village and we needed to leave we took our afghan partners with us so they were in that fight with us that day it's not really uh, explicitly written about in the book but we took all those afghan police officers with us and they traveled around that hairpin turn in the road um, right alongside of us shoulder to shoulder when we came to that choke point is when the taliban started hammering us with rifle fire, machine gun fire, and rocket propel grenades. And basically they caught us in a really uh, compromising position. And 
in that moment, we didn't know where the fire was coming from. We just knew that it was coming and it was hitting the sides of our vehicles and impacting all around us. Rockets were going over our heads, under our vehicles. And my gunner, uh, Sergeant Aaron X. Whitman, was the only one to see where it was all coming from. And eventually we see them, it's 50 meters away. There's a graveyard to the right side of the road and a dirt road. And he starts engaging. So he turns his turret into the direction of the enemy and just starts lighting them up with his 50 caliber machine gun. Mm -hmm. And we're all just trying to get our wits about us. I was literally just looking for an enemy. Yeah. And at that point, before I can even think, the rocket hits our vehicle it actually hits Aaron in the chest, explodes against the back of his turret, which sends shrapnel down into the truck, wounding everybody inside the truck, and then knocking unconscious, you know, severe concussions to everybody else. And I was in the back, like the bed of this big, heavy armored uh, MRAP is what we call it. And uh, I'm knocked out and to the ground, like to the floor of the armored pickup truck, for lack of a better word. So our vehicle is, you know, it now has seven casualties on board. Yeah. And this is I in the first couple yeah. seconds of the battle. First, yeah, first minute. I would say in the first minute of the battle, we are now seven casualties in a 20-man team. Plus our yeah. Afghans were additional to that 20. Yeah. So... Yeah, it was chaotic. Uh, I woke up and immediately started try to, to try to get out from under a, a heavy weight that was on top of me. And that heavy weight was another teammate who, so my gunner had been hit by the rocket. He was quickly passing away. And then another teammate had been knocked down on top of me. And I didn't know his status, yeah. but I figured he was probably another dead teammate. And so I started to kind of try to get out from under him. And that's when I heard him just cry, crying out in pain, like you would if you had just got your leg chopped off. And that's what yeah. he sounded like. Yeah. And I didn't know what his injuries were, but I knew he was alive. And so I knew he and I needed to get back into the fight. So I propped him up behind his 50 caliber machine gun, which was attached to the back of our truck. And I just kind of pointed him in the direction of the enemy, told him when to fire. And then I had him actually fire at the rapid rate later in the battle so that we could land a helicopter. While he's doing that, another part that's not written in the book is that I'm making radio calls, or at least I think I am, to try to manage my little battle space. <laughs> and I'm telling my teammates that we have multiple casualties in vehicle four and we need a medic over here and we've got 150 caliber operational and one is down and I'm not talking to anybody because later I find out that my radio had been sliced in half by shrapnel that had passed right by my body and just sliced the top of my radio off. So I thought I was managing the battlefield, but I wasn't <laughs> in any way. So that was that's kind of i'll take a pause there and see if you have any yeah no it's it's um cory we're not even getting we're not even yet at the the end of the story but as i'm hearing you speak it's it's exactly why 
I believe what I believe about you and what I said about you earlier in this conversation is uh, your leadership, your humility, your your toughness, the the, the your selflessness, um, heroic actions. People use the term hero constantly now, and it's undeserved in many cases, not in this, not as it pertains to you and your teammates. And I know you're going to say, no, it wasn't. And okay. I understand why you're going to say, no, it wasn't. But for my perspective, those are heroic actions that are being taken now by you and your teammates. And we're not even toward the conclusion of this battle, but go ahead. I, yeah. Keep telling the story. It's just amazing. Yeah. I'd be remiss if we stopped here. It just wouldn't do justice to the teammates that were heroes that day. And, and to the reason that I tell this story, you know, in those moments, everybody was doing their job. And so I did what I thought my job was. And I allow, I helped my teammate in the back do his job, you know, get behind that machine gun, despite, whatever wounds he had, which we would find out later. And, and I'll, I'll talk about later, but my driver in that moment, but I'd actually ask you to talk about those wounds. Now, if you could, what, what did he end up having for wounds? Yeah. So I after the two hour firefights and then two more hours of traveling back to our Ford operating base with a completely disabled vehicle, I mean, it's, bloodied vehicle. Yeah. And, and, a vehicle that is not in fighting condition. In fact, we didn't take it out again on a combat mission until we got it fixed. Um, so he spent that four hours not saying a word about his own injuries or asking to be medevaced, you know, evacuated from the battlefield. He just kept doing his job. And when we got back, we found out that he had suffered not only a massive brain injury, a broken back, and then a broken jaw. So the guy to this day, this is, uh, you know, nine years, eight years later, is still suffering from those injuries that should have taken him out of the fight. Yeah, I mean, Corey, so let me ask a question, because everybody's going to hear that. And they're going to think, well, I don't go to war. So, I mean, that's not me. When I hear you talking about it, though, and we've had we've had this discussion a couple of times on this podcast with other guests. A, you don't rise to the occasion. You fall back on the training that you've had right up until that point. Mm -hmm. And number one, number two, we you and I talked about it here just briefly ago that importance of trust, of behaving and performing consistently, because this happens in you, yes, you're doing your job, but you have complete faith and trust that everybody else is doing theirs as well in, mm -hmm. in the worst possible conditions. What were some of the things that you did to develop that trust? A, you said initially, hey, I just, I was a great teammate, but, mm -hmm not only developing, but continuing to build that trust 
is a day-to-day process with each other. It's not just you. Your teammates had to do certain things so that you trusted them. Mm-hmm. What were some of those things that you did as a team? Yeah, so each one of us was willing to take risk. And I had five kids and a wife at home. And so, well, actually, at that time, I had four kids and a wife. Nina Mae was not born yet. Yeah. But I had a lot to come home to. I had a lot of reasons to not die. And despite that, and I use the word despite on purpose, I could not think about all those reasons as to where maybe I wouldn't do something as risky as my teammates. And so I think we all assumed an equal amount of risk on a daily basis. And so, you know, seeing my teammates shed their gear, take off their bulletproof vest and walk into a meeting. Wow. That earns some trust with me. Uh, So me doing the same thing and maybe putting myself at risk to earn more trust with my Afghan partners, my teammates see that they see, Hey, Corey's willing to, to lay it out there for the team. Yeah. You know, I he's witnessed- not asking us to do something he isn't willing to do himself. And that's exactly where I'm going with this is that there was nobody on that team that was along for the ride on that day. Previous to that day, we always talk about culture. You're either going to fit our culture or it's going to be a bad relationship when we hire somebody at the program. So if you are selfless, tough, and disciplined, you'll love it here. If you're not, then it, then it won't be a good situation and, and you won't like it here. With that being said, we had people that did not do their job in firefights previous to that day and, and in combat situations that, and I vividly remember coming back from those actions and, and asking the question, what were you doing? What were you doing during the first minutes of that fight? We should have had another machine gun up and going. And those people weren't there on that day because they didn't last long. Yeah. So it's a constant, you know, really a struggle to make sure you are meeting the standards that support our values. And I'm kind of going into section one of the book, but it is intertwined in that day. Yeah. I mean, look, it's why we used it as a, as that story as a backdrop for this section and adversity right it's not when you develop your culture it's not like on that day you were developing your culture that that was an opportunity to to prove how strong your culture is or was at that time right um and boy haven't we seen it Corey? right when people think about well yeah but that's in afghanistan that's in the Tora Bora mountains i mean look just today i mean how often have we seen that Corey? as the president of the program corporate, I mean, how often have we seen that throughout this pandemic? Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, maybe not just also in corporate America. We, we've seen it in personal relationships. I mean, the stories we've heard about with, with families, right? Between spouses, with children. And look, just in that, in some of those cases, relationships have flourished because of that family's culture. Mm-hmm. And others relationships other families have are failed miserably Mm -hmm. in this adversity and the same that that's true for those families it's true in corporate america teams in corporate america have flourished not despite 
or in spite of this pandemic, they've they've flourished because of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And, and, and as just as true as it is for families in corporate North America, it's true for all the athletic teams. Yep. Mm-hmm. Some teams are flourishing. Other teams are failing. And why? That team's culture. Mm-hmm. The and you know the most important thing about culture is that we control it. Mm-hmm. Corey, I'm excited for you to tell us how we do so. What are the basics of creating a championship culture, a world-class culture? Yeah, so we we talk about it in, in a sense of the building blocks of the cultures that we've been privileged enough to be a part of, whether it's in the special operations community, in the Marine Corps, the Army, uh, and then all of the companies and athletic teams, corporations and athletic teams that we've been a part of over the past 13 years, what we've seen are the common factors and, and building blocks to that culture. Number one, best people. You, you've got to have the best people on your team. And, and really what that means to us is you can't win without talent. Okay. You, you can't lead your industry. You can't, uh, for some of our clients, you know, provide power uh, if you're in the energy industry or, or make people's wealthy if you're in the finance industry without talented people that know the work. Yeah, right. But equally as important, we believe, and what we know from what we've seen is that those talented people, your best people, have to embody your culture as well. Yeah. And what that means to us is, is our core values. What, what do we believe is core? Who are we as, a, as an organization? If you get majority talented people that embody those core values, then you've got your best. Those are your best people. Yeah. And, yeah. and I describe those best people in the book, you know, our driver, uh, my gunner, Sergeant Whitman, uh, Sergeant First Class Harris in the back seat, and, and, and a couple other folks that we talk about, those were best. And they embodied that culture every day leading up to that event. And I want to talk about one person individually. And the, because in the people who didn't, just equally as important, you just mentioned it earlier, and the people who didn't, they were very talented people. Yeah, but they didn't embody your core values and you've got to get rid of those people because either these people develop and they change or as leaders, and we're going to talk about it later, it is your job to get rid of them because that hairpin turn in the road, yeah, it may not be RPGs that are firing at us literally, but we're going to face some adversity and either those best people are going to ensure that we're still able to accomplish the mission or the people that we've allowed who are not part of that culture are going to ensure that we have mission failure. Yep. Yeah, and, and a great example of tying this all together with best people and, and the fact that nobody rises to the occasion is the medic, the, the SF medic that day. Uh, he wasn't in our truck. He was two trucks behind us, so about 250, 300 yards away, which is a long way when you're 50 meters away from the enemy. So he's further away from me than I am to the enemy, if you want to look at it like that. 
Right. And he ran that Green Beret medic, Bobby Lane, ran through that 250 meter stretch of road, despite machine gun rounds and rockets hitting all over the place around him to treat our casualties. We had fire superiority. We had other people engaging, doing their jobs. Bobby's job was to get to our truck and assess seven casualties and a KIA, a teammate that had been killed. So he looks, he he called me about a year ago and, and just admitted that in that situation, he didn't know what to do. Consciously, he didn't know what to do. And I said, Bobby, you did exactly what you were supposed to do you triaged our casualties and and you were a hero and we recognized you for it. We gave him a medal for heroism and valor in combat that day. And he said, yeah, but you don't understand. I didn't know what to do. I said, okay, well, I'm telling you, you did all the right things in the right order. You did your job and then some. And I said, you know why? Because you weren't that guy that just rose to the occasion and magically became a hero that day. You were that guy from the day I met you. And on day one, Bobby told me to go get my gear. And he said, and I said, what gear? And I'm a captain. He's a sergeant. I'm like, what, what gear are you talking about? Staff sergeant. And he said, your gear, your flak jacket or, or your, your plate carrier, go get it. And I was like, okay. So I pull it out and he starts inspecting it and ripping all of the things out of my first aid kit. And, and saying, why do you have this? Why do you have that? Here's what you actually need and setting me up for success. But really he was holding me accountable. I should have already been set up. I should have asked those questions before he got a hold of me. And so he holds me accountable. I outrank him by about six ranks or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, or more. Right. And so on that day, I mean, it was just a habit for him to hold himself and his teammates to a high standard. So on January 10th, when he runs through a hail of machine gun fire, was I surprised about that? No, he surprised himself, but I wasn't surprised. Corey, that that's a big point there though, that you outrank him by a whole lot. Mm -hmm. But for that, interaction to be successful for that accountability to be successful it's not just bobby that needs the person holding you accountable to to be able to hold you accountable Mm -hmm. it's also the person on the receiving end to be mature enough humble enough to be held accountable too and if we don't have both of those uh, when you hit that hairpin turn in the road later in your relationship, really bad things mm-hmm. could have occurred that day. Yeah. Even worse than, I mean, it's horrible what the, the Sergeant Whitman's death, I mean, is, is obviously, I mean, uh, you know, horrible. But I'm saying you, you would have had even more KIA that, that day mm, if, sure. if we don't have in those moments not great teammates and great team leaders. Um, okay, so so we have, you talked about best people. If, we, if we're going to have a great, if we're going to have a world-class culture, whether it's my family, a corporation, an athletic team, we need the best people. The best people, as you said, highlighted, included 
Yep, we need talent, but we need individuals to embody our core values, number one. What else do we need, Corey? Yeah, so once we have those best people, we're going to ask them and we're going to empower them to set standards and goals. And, and those standards will reinforce our core values. Those goals are what we want to achieve as an organization, whether it be a, a military, a sports, a corporate team, uh, a company that's a high character company wants to achieve things. Really, any organization wants to achieve things. If you're in business, you want to make money. So we all have goals. Families, they want to have a nice cars. They maybe want to pay off those cars. They want to potentially send their kids to a next level of education. It's, it's really easy to have goals. But the elite teams that we've been a part of and that we work with have both goals and standards. Yes. And nothing has become more clear to me throughout my professional journey and my journey as a parent than the difference and the distinction between goals and standards. 100%. The way you described it in the book with kids these days, I mean, it speaks to every client that we have. It speaks to myself and my wife. It's not the kids these days. As we watch uh, middle school, high school basketball games and you see a kid on the court, you know, exhibiting just selfish behavior or bad sportsmanship and you're, and you're judging that kid and you're saying, man, the kids these days, they don't know what it's like to be part of a team or to be a team leader or anything like that. But really what you should be doing is find the parents. And I'm looking because I always look to the left at the parents <laughs> section and I'm trying to figure out who that kid's parents are. hundred percent. And tell me if I'm lying, it's usually very obvious because when that kid gets jerked out of the game by the coach, the parent is up in arms. What are you doing coach? Put him back in. And it's like, it's just obvious that it's not the kids. These kids, the kids these days are no different than your parents, my grandparents, you know, the world war II generation that we so often hear about. They're not different. The it's kids the these parents. days were driving your vehicle yes. in the Tora Bora Mountains that day. Exactly. So, I mean, the program team, we know this to be true. We have to tell this story of my driver, who, who was 19 years old at the time, a private first class, the very lowest ranking guy on the team, who's wounded immediately in that first minute of the firefight. He's got a four-inch piece of shrapnel sticking out of his right shoulder serious wound something that i would probably be taken out of the fight with but that that teammate of mine he didn't ask to be treated he didn't scream for a medic or yell out i'm hit like you would see in a movie he continued driving our vehicle which was critical basically he continued doing his job in the face of more adversity than most of us can ever imagine and he got us out of the kill zone which is the, the focus of an ambush, the kill zone. He gets us out of the kill zone and into a position where we could fight back and did, and we won that fight. I mean, we were successful in, in killing the Taliban that day that were trying to kill us. And, and, and if you're, and I think Corey, you know, and I think mistakenly what a lot of people will think is, 
oh yeah, but that kid's special. It's the army. It'd be, I think he was army, right? The driver was, was yep. army and that, right? It, it's the army. It's the U S military that made him that way. And that is a slap in the face to that child's parents, mm-hmm. because ultimately our role as parents, our number one job is to develop our children. And if your children are not, is what I think you were, you were highlighting there. Yeah, it's because every fa- parent gives their kids goals. Mm-hmm. You got to get A's. You got to ha- make this. Oh, man, look at that goal you scored at the end of the game. Look at those baskets you scored. Yeah, great. Have goals. But we need goals and standards. Mm-hmm. Corey, as it pertains to standards, mm-hmm. uh, any advice as to where parents, business leaders, coaches should start when thinking about appropriate standards? Hmm. That's a good question. I think first, your standards are going to reinforce your values. So mm-hmm. once you've set your core values, once you've decided who we are, and I, just a very quick example is that we are at the program selfless, tough, and disciplined. So our standards that support those core values are selfless acts that you can see. They're disciplined or tough acts. You, you exhibit emotional, mental, and physical toughness some way that we can see it. And then we're disciplined. Mm. And so to establish standards for your family, you got to decide who you are first. You know, are, are we a, a selfless family? Are we always looking to, to make our community better? Then establish standards that reinforce that. And the most important thing is these standards, they're, they have to be uh, a choice that you make to either meet or exceed or not meet or exceed. So it can't be something like, we wanna make X amount of money. That would be a goal. A standard would be that you show up to class every day on time, show up to work every day on time. Yeah, not talent-based, choice-based. Exactly. Yeah, So, so, so from an athletics, it's not, well, a standard isn't scoring 20 points. A standard is, do I, do I work on my free throws for an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where families are missing. They're, they're missing this elite uh, culture in, in families and businesses because everything becomes a goal. And if my kid, who I'll just use it as an example, my, old, my, my second oldest child, who's potentially graduating this year, if he fails to make it to school or work on time, and I say to him, hey, you know what? This is unacceptable. Tomorrow, I need you to try harder to get to school or work on time. Then tomorrow, he's going to fail again. Because the piece, the critical piece that's missing there is kind of what my fa- my own father missed in the beginning of my degenerate behavior was that there was no consequence. Yeah. There was no consequence for me making a choice to not meet the standard. Yeah. And for my son, if he chooses to sleep past his alarm or, or, or not set himself up to be at school on time, he's making that choice. And I've got to be strong enough to 
hold my ground and be willing to enforce that standard with some kind of consequence. Many families aren't. They threaten it all day. They say, hey, if you do that one more time, I'm taking away your iPad or I'm taking away your phone, but they don't. Or they right. take it away for an hour. So it's not a real consequence. That's right. God, it's and, key, right? Yeah. It's and key. when we have that, everything becomes a goal and a team that just has goals, but no standards of behavior, then you don't see the behaviors that you need uh, to become that championship team, that elite team. You don't see it on a daily basis. Yeah. God, completely. Now, so it starts with the best people. Mm -hmm. A point I would like to add about the best people is people, coaches, business leaders may say, well, yeah, but I mean, you don't know what you have until you have it, until they're working with you. Mm -hmm. And the point I'd like to make about that, and you've seen it too, right, Corey? And we, we say this is Bill Gates once famously said, don't ever hire B-level people. Because if you hire a B-level person, you'll hire a C-level person. And then the A-level people leave. Mm -hmm. Completely agree with Mr. Gates. The issue is, is that you don't know what you have until you hire that person. Mm -hmm. And the problem is not in hiring a, a mistake in hiring them. The mistake is in firing them. And that, well, I'm going to keep working with them. I'm going to keep working with them. I'm going to keep working with them. As a leader, you're 100% responsible. But just because you're 100% responsible does not mean that that person who you hired is not also 100% responsible. Because as a leader, if you take 100% responsibility, but that person does not, you're going to get a failing 50% outcome. And if that person is not going to take 100% responsibility and not show their development, then your job as a leader is to get rid of that person from your team. Because by not doing so, you are hurting every other member of the team. Just like you and your the other leaders did of your team in Afghanistan. And if you hadn't, then... When you hit that hairpin turn in the road, many more people would have died. Mm -hmm. You see it occurring right now with the pandemic. Leaders who did not want to get rid of people they know should not be on their team. Now adversity hits, and now you're paying the price for trying to be everybody's best friend. So number one, we need the best people. Number two, as you pointed out, goals and standards, because goals and standards form, give us structure. And we all perform best within a structure. Mm -hmm. And third, what, what's the last piece of this, Corey? So kind of the capstone of, the, of these building blocks is your core values, your goals and standards. All of that is, is just words on a wall is what I like to say. If you don't have a commitment to them by everybody at the organization to meet these standards every single day to meet or exceed these standards consistently. Yeah. And that commitment, there's two, two ways and two, two techniques that, that I'll just mention real quick that we see in corporate America and in the athletic space where you can get that commitment. 
And one of those is by having your best develop those standards. Mm-hmm. So, so if you Great set the point. culture as a business leader or as a coach or a parent, you set that culture, but then you ask, well, how can we be disciplined? What, what uh, actions and behaviors can we do to be a disciplined team? And those best, they set those standards. What you get by that is, is buy-in. The other piece Corey, of Corey, I want to, how, and you, I think you said it there too, and I'd like to reiterate it too, is yes, that's for corporate American athletic teams. As parents, you set the culture of your team, of your family. Mm-hmm. You set what the core values are. But as you had, talk to your children about what the standards are that they want that reinforce those core values. God, that, that's, that, that, that's, that's really, really mission critical. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. buy-in? Two of our standards are work hard and do what you say you're going to do. And that might sound familiar to you, but <laughs> I can ask, you know, what are some of the behaviors that you think is hard work? to my kids and they can list well it's if I do all my chores if it's I you know if I get all my school work done on time and I'm getting good grades like that that shows my hard work okay then we'll set that we'll set getting your school work done on time and doing all your chores when they're supposed to be done as the definition of, as the standards for hard work right exactly and not talent based you're not saying you've got to get A's you're saying you have to get you have to get all your work done, so a choice. Yeah, exactly, and definitely not talent based because all you know when you have five kids, not all of them are scholars. Yeah, not all of them are going to be valedictorian. I believe two of ours will be valedictorian. <laughs> two of the five. <laughs> um, it, but the other piece I did want to add, I promised to add the second piece, which we oh, yes, see a yeah. lot. Now, in in setting those standards, yeah, you could do it as the business leader or as the head coach. You could set the standards that reinforce your own core values. A, you wouldn't get buy-in or a, a strong commitment from your team. And B, you may not know the individual behaviors that are vital to mission success. So those little things that happen in the weight room or that happen you know, in the cubicles, if, if you're a company that's working in an office building, those little things might be kind of not visible to you at your level. So you need that information from the ground to set accurate and, and achievable standards that we can that we can meet or exceed. Yeah. And then, you know, it's funny, Corey, it reminds me that. uh coaches will say, you know, we have our leadership council or our team captains. I'm trying to develop their leadership. I mean, I, I let them, I let them choose where we're going to eat when we're on the road. Mm -hmm. And we always point out like, uh, that's not developing their leadership. That's making them a food critic. Mm -hmm. Like that doesn't give ownership to them. What gives ownership is first and foremost is having those the people of the organization and if it's our family i have all the kids do it right 
but 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 maybe that's not possible on on an athletic team or in a corporation but at the very least you can select your best people and have them determine what the standards are that gives ownership of the culture to your organization Corius, a, a second piece of this that I'd like to highlight before we wrap up here is uh, don't ever ask your people to do something you're unwilling to do yourself. I mentioned it earlier. You talked about, hey, I'm going to get behind the gun. You talked about humility. You talked about getting your hands dirty. Don't ever ask your people to do something you're not willing to do yourself. But how often do we see parents, coaches, business leaders tell their kids, tell their athletes, tell their corporate employees to do something that they're unwilling to do themselves? Mm -hmm. And if we do so, we lose any sort of moral authority over our culture. Why is it so important that the leader embodies those core values first and foremost? if we don't have an example of what right looks like or what our culture looks like, we will be in a never ending cycle of trying to figure out why we are not achieving our goals. And we're running into that in, in the corporate space where, where we work with companies all over North America. And what we find out is that we all talk a good game. We all know what leadership is in the classroom. And we all know what being a good, great teammate is in a classroom. Or, uh, yeah, meaning a climate controlled space when we're sitting in the boardroom. Yeah. yeah. Everybody has all the right answers yeah. in, in that environment. Right. But then what we find out when we visit and, and get into, into their battle space of these companies that we work with, we find that the people they're demanding these standards from and that they're frustrated because people aren't meeting the standards they might not have ever seen what right looks like. And so the leader first has to exemplify everything that they're going to expect and demand from their team. And I mean, I think it's, it's critical. It, it can't happen without that. The, the culture cannot thrive without the leader doing it. Yeah. At a high level. It reminds me, I was recently asked about joining this group on Facebook. Mm-hmm and you're on facebook <laughs> okay so exactly my point so first of all i said I, I told the person another business leader who who i'm friends with that i've made uh the ter determination in my own life that i'm not going to spend one minute of my life on social media oh. and the reason for it is is that because when my children are old enough to get phones uh i'm going to ask them not to spend waste one minute of their life on social media either. Mm -hmm. But if I'm doing it myself, I lose the moral authority to tell them and ask them to do so. Mm -hmm. and getting back to as a parent, because I know how important it is to you and, and to me, is that's just one small example of it. But how mm -hmm. often are we asking our people to do things that we don't do ourselves? And to your point, God, everybody, we model our, first and foremost, we model our behavior off of others around us. You started this conversation with a story of doing exactly that. And it mm -hmm. led you down a very bad road, a very bad path. 
by the same token, the up, there's also an upside of modeling our behavior around the people we associate with, so long as those people are modeling good, proper, right behavior. And what does good, proper, right mean? That's for you and your team to decide. And every team is different. But that decision must be made, must be communicated, and first and foremost, must be uh, shown, starting with the leader. Yeah. Corey, let me close this be, uh, with asking you a question about me, because I'm not sure where the program would be without you and your leadership. But I know that it's not anywhere close to where we are now. Even more importantly, we would not be who we are without your influence. You've heard me say this before but you are mission critical to our success as an organization. Because of it, I'd love to hear what you need out of me. Do I do something well that I need to continue to do? What, what do I need to do better? I'd say two things that come to mind right off the bat. Number one, we talk about mission focus in the face of physical, mental, and emotional adversity. And, and that's actually our definition of toughness. You do that well, better now than you ever have. And I would say it's also a, a daily struggle, I would, I would assume, that when things aren't going the way you want them to go, you maintain what the, the book legacy, they call it a blue head a cool head, even when everybody else is losing their minds. And I would say as a leader, there, there's very few qualities that are higher than, than that one is to maintain that cool head when other people, and I'm, I'm blending a quote from um, Gates of Fire as well in there, when everybody else is losing their minds. Uh, and the other thing that you do well is that we as human beings, we could easily settle into a fixed mindset where we're making enough money and we're good, or I'm comfortable in my job and I'm good. And I, I almost lost it one day when I heard a leader in an organization, I asked him what he could do better. And he said, I'm, I'm good. I'm pretty good where I'm at. Then I just looked right at him and said, we're different in my mind. I said, we are different. <laughs> and that's that fixed mindset. And so I just think that you consistently drive us away from having that fixed mindset. And we call it just getting that much better every day. But those two things are what you do well um, as a leader. And I'd say what you could do better is just if you had more time in your day, more mentorship for every single person on our team. And that's just a function of your time and the demands on it. So more mentorship on a, on a daily basis of behaviors you're seeing and how they're good or how they could be better of each one of our program teammates to include myself. Thank you. I'm going to take that for action. I appreciate that. The program in this podcast mission is to help develop great teammates and great team leaders. 
and in doing so, create more cohesive teams. Corey, thank you so much for helping accomplish that mission today. My pleasure. We get to do what we love. And to quote one of our great friends, we're changing, we're transforming society through corporate America and athletics. And it's the greatest job you could ever have. Well, I certainly feel that way about our mission and even more so because of the people that I get to go and accomplish that mission with none more than you want a championship world-class culture have the best people people who are talented and who share your organization's core values goals and standards what do we want to achieve and how are we expected to behave while doing so forms the structure that those people come to work and live have both we all perform best within a structure and finally an unwavering commitment to our best people and equally important an unwavering commitment to our core values in theory very simple easy in practice very challenging great teammates and great team leaders help develop them. For our listeners, to sign up for our monthly letter on leadership and to learn more about the program and our leadership development and team building services for your own team, go to theprogram.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at theprogram.org and on Facebook at theprogram.org and at we do one more and on LinkedIn at the-program LLC. If you have enjoyed today's program podcast, please leave a review of it on whatever platform you have accessed it from. Finally, to read more about Corey and creating a world-class culture, purchase the program, Lessons from Elite Military Units for Creating and Sustaining High-Performance Leaders and Teams. Please visit Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Or it can be found on the program website, theprogram.org. Until the next time, thank you and attack.